This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. So if you have a question, uh, reach out to us at podcasts at AOPA.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our weekly maintenance stories and monthly maintenance newsletter, simply text the word SAVVY, that's S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and the text bot will ask you for your email address, and it will put you on our list. Again, Text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to get on our list. Colleen might know about this. Paul probably doesn't know about this, but it's kind of interesting. As of the 1st of January, two or three airports in Santa Clara County, California, that's the county where San Jose is in, are no longer going to be allowed to sell 100 low-lead avgas. Wow. That wow. includes Reed Hillview, which oh is God. the major general aviation airport in, um, in San Jose. And um, we think that it may also include Watsonville Airport, which is another big active general aviation airport. But the powers that be in Santa Clara County have decided that they are not they are not going to allow any more lead in their county and uh, they have simply decreed that as of January 1st there will be no more 100 low lead fuel sold on their very very active general aviation fields so i talked to richard mcspadden this morning and um, he was discussing with me what options people have if they have to go into these airports. And uh, we discussed some things like, for example, that, that there are quite a few engines, but certainly not all engines that are low compression, were originally certified for 8087 that can run on unleaded auto gas, which I presume will be available at those fields now. And that, um, that if People are desperate, and we were sort of setting aside the legality of all of this. That um, um, if you have to, if if you have a an engine that burns centered low lead, and you need to take on substandard fuel, 
you should probably try to do something like segregate the two, put put hundred low lead in the left tank and and the, the the crummy fuel in the right tank and use the good fuel for take off and climb and use the crummy fuel for reduced power cruise where you probably don't need all that detonation margin. And I also talked to him about the fact that if you're going to be running on on substandard fuel, again, the legalities aside, that it's a really, really good idea to have an engine monitor uh, with a CHT alarm to alert you of, uh, of, of any detonation issues, which would manifest themselves as a CHT thermal runaway in one or more cylinders so that you can react to it immediately because from the time a runaway starts to the time the cylinder is destroyed typically can be as little as one minute, one or two minutes. So the first thing that strikes me, having the leaded fuel in tanks, as long as it stays in the tanks, is not a safety issue. But running the engines, creating the exhaust is a bit of an issue. So they're not stopping that. They're just stopping the sale of the fuel. So the airplanes will still fly in and out because they'll buy fuel somewhere nearby. Right. And they're still going to be burning the fuel. I'm, I'm just, I just have these visions of, of people showing up at the airport and, you know, at 3 a.m. with SUVs full of, yeah. of 100 low lead, you know, black market. Hundred that that they're selling for twenty dollars a gallon because you're Buddy, stuck there fuel. and you can't get out. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm each in the alley. Over, I'm each in the alley over yeah. on third and fourth. Right. Ten dollars a gallon. Oh, Someone, man. you know what? We probably just gave some people, some enterprising people, a very good idea. Oh, the enterprising people probably get would get the idea without our help. <laughs> <laughs> Our first question is from Brian, who is trying to parse out the ELT regulations. Go ahead, Brian. Okay, so how do you know if an ELT has been active for over an hour or if it's reached 50% of its life? Okay, so I get in a lot of trouble because I don't study prior to these podcasts. And so I really like your question, and I'm waiting for Colleen to have thoroughly studied and know the answer to this one, so I will now also know. Oh, you know, I actually did study. I, I, I read the reg have, and I, I asked a couple avionics people how they know if it's gone, you know. And um, they don't. And they don't. They said <laughs> yes. they just replace the batteries on schedule. Yep. And if you happen to have a bad landing, which none of us ever have a bad landing, but if you, the next day you come out and you find your ELT has been going off or somebody called you and told you that, they say that you can't estimate how long it's been going and you probably should just replace the batteries at that point. So they always talked about in an abundance of caution, just being very conservative and replacing the batteries. Now, some batteries are very expensive and you kind of prefer not to if you didn't have to. But if you trust your ELT and you think it's going to save your bacon in an accident, you really want those batteries to be as fresh as they can. On a 406 ELT, you would know because it transmits to the satellites and you get that phone call at home saying, you know, are you there and all that. But on an old 121.5, yeah, there's no way to trace that. But those batteries are cheap. Yeah, those are cheap. They're D-cells, so. 
I just knew you were going to find some bulletin somewhere that... No, it's a great question. You know, I never questioned that. I always just replace them every 24 calendar months. But yeah, you wouldn't know how long it's been going. And you can't do a load test on ELT batteries because you'd ruin them, right? So... (laughs) (laughs) Those Duracell, D-cell batteries. And if you do have an old 121.5 that has the Duracell, D-cell batteries, it really doesn't matter because nobody's listening for it. I heard one just two days ago, coming back from Pittsburgh, and I called ATC and heard it just started. And as soon as I called in, like four or five others called. So somebody's listening, but come to find out it had been on like all day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not that they're, I mean, they are unmonitored, you know, they're not monitored continuously, but people still listen to 121.5 and they hear it and they catch it. It's that they they just give you a horrible pattern for search and rescue. I mean, finding where that location is is uh, very difficult. It's a, it's kind of a lost art. The Civil Air Patrol still practices it, but they walk around with this little divining rod, basically. And they usually have kids doing it because they're trying to train kids and give them something they can do in the unit. So it's a very... Um, not a very expeditious way to get found if you've had an accident out in the in the sticks. The 406 uses the GPS, and it's a much more precise signal, and it's monitored from space. So for all those reasons, I'm upgrading my ELT this year. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. That and it didn't pass the AD. (laughs) Uh So so it was time to go. Yeah. Well, you may may have to, you may be talking me into doing doing mine as well, because I still got one of those old boat anchors. Yeah, we have three airplanes, and all three had the old boat anchors. But um, they've come down in price enough that it's it's worth doing. It, and it's and there's easy swap in replacements. It's just that the batteries are expensive to replace. They're not the D cells like Paul mentioned. But they last longer too. Many of them yeah. are five year batteries instead of two year. Yeah, and I always have all these extra D cells because I have to replace them, uh, you know, on calendar, and I don't have enough flashlights that need them all. So. Yeah, all the LED flashlights with phone batteries in them now. (laughs) The the D-cell's kind of going out. Save them for Christmas. Give them away with all those, you know. Yeah. Ship them. (laughs) Ship them. (laughs) Brian, I'm sorry. We didn't mean to make light of your question. Does that kind of answer it? or? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I thought is there's really no way to know. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is really no way to know. It's the modified honor system. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, great question. I mean, it, it's good to ask, you know, the regs just say this and people just say, okay, yep, you bet. And they don't really question, well, how am I supposed to do this? So it's good to hear questions out of the box like this. So we appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Our next question is from Ryland, who wants the best of both worlds. Go ahead, Ryan. Hey there, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, really enjoy the show a lot. My question is about installing experimental avionics um, in a certified airplane, uh, specifically in vintage airplane um, that don't necessarily have very much on the minimum equipment list. I uh, am interested in installing an engine monitor. I've heard you guys talk a lot about the benefits of an engine monitor in my 1947 Stinson 108. Ooh, that's cool. And... I'm an apprentice A&P, so uh, I work around airplanes a lot. And, uh, cool. you know, I've, I've kind of come to the point to where having the modern technology in the vintage airplane is more desirable to me than having the perfectly stock vintage airplane thing. 
and um, I can get more bang for my buck if I install experimental avionics. So the question is about installing those things as a minor alteration. And then specifically where I, where I struggle is, is how do I go about making the case that they meet minimum certification standards under CAR3? Are there examples of other people who have made those cases I can look at? Um, could you point me towards those? Or does TSO parts, is that really the only way that, that somebody like me who's not a DAR can make that case for minimum standards? And also what one of the specifics that came up was, for instance, doing fuel flow. You know, that might be considered an alteration to the fuel system, major alteration. What if I use a TSO'd fuel flow transducer in order to try to argue that that is, meets minimum standards? Hopefully I gave you enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think so. That's quite a bit. <laughs> Go ahead, Colleen. You're just you're just chomping at the bits on this. One. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to be wrong, but um, <laughs> I'll let you know, Colleen. But having installed <laughs> two JPIs in my certified and then experimental aircraft, I think the installation has to be in a certified aircraft. It has to be a certified engine monitor. I mean, there's a lot of experimental engine monitors out there. The Dynon comes to mind, and the experimental versions are cheaper than the certified versions, so it's really enticing to just go with the experimental model. But I think in both cases, I was restricted to having to put something, well, not in the experimental aircraft, but the certified aircraft. I had to go with a certified engine monitor. And I think it also matters if you're replacing primary engine instruments, then it's definitely going to be an issue. I'm, I'm assuming you're just putting something in that's just displaying EGT, CHT, like a basic 700 series JPI. But I still think you have to stick to the um, certified version. Well, let, let's, let, let, let's take a... Let's take an extreme case. Supposing you decided that you wanted to install a Frigidaire refrigerator in the back of your Cardinal. Okay. A kegerator, yeah. <laughs> now, okay. now, there are no certified refrigerators, to the best of my knowledge. So, so you, certified so you, coffee pots, but... So, so you, you're going to buy one at Lowe's. And now what, what, what would it take to install that refrigerator in your... I have to uh, plug it into the power. Uh, but that's an owner-produced part, right? So I could get a... No? <laughs> well, okay. So let, let's consider. First First of all, you know, if you could get some really strong Velcro, you could install it and and, and consider it to not be installed and, and get around with it that way. But let's suppose you actually want to install it with some fasteners. What, what, do, you, what do you actually need to do to make that legal? I have to show that it's going to be structurally sound and... Well, I think Ryland pretty much hit the nose on the head. What what you need to do is show that it meets the same certification requirements that the aircraft had to meet, which in the case of his Stinson is, is, is CAR3. So you have to jump through the same hoops that Stinson would have had to jump through had Stinson decided to offer a Frigidaire refrigerator option when they built the airplane. Now, that's doable. And if it's a minor alteration, and how do you know if it's a minor alteration? Well, you look at the, at, at the definition of major alteration in FAR 1.1 and see whether it triggers any of the hot buttons in that definition that would make it a major alteration. And 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 the FAA gives you a little bit more guidance in 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 
Part 43, Appendix A, because they list a bunch of things that they, as examples of things that they consider major alterations, just to get you, give you the idea. So, for example, if you're messing with the fuel system, that could make it a major alteration. We don't want it to be a major alteration because then you have to have approved data. So that pretty much means you'd have to go sweet talk a FISDO inspector into giving you a, a field approval, which you might be able to do. But we're trying to figure out how you can avoid doing that. But, but I don't think the Frigidaire refrigerator would trigger any of those things that would make it a major alteration. If you look at the definition of major alteration, if you, certainly if you look at Part 43, Appendix A, you're not going to find anything about installing refrigerators in there as being a major alteration. So if it's a minor alteration, then, you, then what you have to do is you have to make a determination that it meets all of the applicable certification standards, which in the case of the Stinson would be CAR3. Now, that's a fairly heavy burden because... You know, there are things like flammability requirements. There are things like the refrigerator can't fly about the cabin when you pull three Gs. There's, there's a whole bunch of things that, that you'd have to. And, and probably the most difficult thing that you have to do with, that, with that, that refrigerator is you have to make a determination that it doesn't interfere with any of the other systems in the airplane. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't put RFI in the radios, for example, and stuff like that. So it's a fairly heavy burden, and it's a burden that's heavy enough that most A&Ps would say, nah, I don't think so. You know, I'm, I'm not going to take that upon myself to make that determination. We're going to have to either get something that's STC'd, where somebody else has jumped through, through all those hoops already, or we're going to need to try to get a, a field approval. And if you try to get a field approval for something that isn't a major alteration, theoretically, the aviation safety inspector is supposed to say, well, that's not a major alteration. You don't need a field approval for that, which happened to me once where I applied for a field approval and was told you don't need one. But it's the point I'm trying to make is you can basically put anything you want to in an airplane, but you have to jump through a lot of hoops to do it. And most mechanics don't want to take it upon themselves to to do that because it's it's fairly complicated. I have gone through the field approval process and it was a pain. And that was 20 years ago. So I hear that they're even it's less more of likely. more now. Yeah. 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 Back when they would yeah. do those things. Well, Ryland, when you get that uh, STC for the kegerator, make sure and send it to me because I might want to use that as well. But um, it was a great question and obviously um, a lot of good information came out from it. And, so. and, and, and we had fun with it. Was, and we had fun. the most yeah. important part. <laughs> so thank you for calling. <laughs> Take See care. you, Ryland. Bye. Our next question is from Richard, who's looking to baby his engine. And from what I'm guessing, he's probably already doing it. But uh, go ahead, Richard. Let us know what you're doing. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, Mike and all, thanks for so much that you do that uh, helps to make uh, owning these things more affordable. I really do appreciate it, as do partners and everybody here. My question is related to engine RPM on initial startup, first startup of the day. I have a, a, an older Skylane. It's a 0230, I mean, sorry, 0430, normally aspirated. Uh, and, uh, you know, typically I've seen a lot of people, whenever they start any Cessna, they'll just go right up to 1,000 RPM, no matter what time of the temperature or what it's been doing. Whereas I tend to, after first startup, 
let, you know, get it to 700, 750, give it a couple minute or two, then up to 850, but almost never above that till taxi time. And I guess my question is, is it, is that worse for the plane, better for, for the engine? Um, any feeling on that? You, you think if, you think maybe he's overthinking this a little? Yeah, bit? just a little. <laughs> well, I think the guys parked behind him are thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, the, I think the engine is not a 430. I think it's the GPS that's a 430. I think the engine's he, a 470. He meant a 470. But yeah. maybe you got them. Maybe you got them swapped. Maybe you got the Garmin up on that. That would explain <laughs> a lot. When I'm with aviation celebrities, I get a little nervous. <laughs> You're intimidating them. <laughs> No, I think it sounds like you're doing everything pretty much exactly right. You need to go talk to the other people that are around you that are doing the other things. They're the yeah. ones that need to be talked to. Mm-hmm. It, it's so painful when you hear somebody first light up and wham. Uh, oh, know, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. It's like, ah, you know what you're doing. I, I, You know, I don't think it's a big deal for the engine. It's But as, as Colleen points out, it's a big deal for anybody who's behind you. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the... Uh, the POH typically says um, a thousand RPM idle is just fine, and if you're worried about between a thousand and seven or eight hundred, I don't think the engine's going to notice a difference. I can't think of anything in the engine that's going to, you know. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't idle it so slow that it that it feels real rough. So I, I kind of use roughness as sort of the the lower bound of where you where you idle it. But an 0470 set up properly will idle just beautifully at about 500 yeah. RPM. Yeah, I think I think you're supposed to set it up for 600. That's where the throttle stop's supposed to be set up. So it definitely has a sexy lope at the lower RPM. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, let's see. Wait a minute. 182 and sexy. I'm not sure I've heard those two words in the same. Oh no, oh. no, no, no. 182s are really sexy, Paul. Oh, okay. Uh, it's throaty continental. You got to love it. Well, yeah, no, the, the sound is one thing. I just never mind. I'm, I'm going to leave that one. But that 470 is the best engine continental ever built. And I think the Skyline is arguably the best airplane that Cessna ever built. Although Paul, I know, is partial to 210s. But. And I'm partial to 177s. But yeah. But certainly the 182 well, the is the workhorse. The 177 is the prettiest. That's, that's the, what people that's call sexy. Built. That's for sure. I would absolutely agree with that. And if you have an engine failure, just flap those doors and... Uh... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or if you have a control lock failure, just don't use the doors as a, a paddle, you know? Yeah, Gosh. Dad and I used to fly 150 around with the doors. Well, Richard, good luck with that. Thank you so much for the call. Um, My pleasure. We, Thank we you enjoyed so the helpful information as well. Enjoy your skyline. Uh, thank you. Your have sexy it. skyline. Yeah. The sexy <laughs> skyline with the throaty yeah. sound. <laughs> 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 Okay, our next question is from Justin, who has a quandary about unsafe airplanes. Go ahead, Justin. So hey, here's kind of what happened. I, I recently took a trip to Florida because I was looking to buy a Cherokee 6. And I had an A&P do a, a pre-buy and everything on the airplane. And, you know, just from listening to you guys, it's, I know that that's something that needs to be done. And I also know buying planes from Florida, and I know now for sure, is kind of a bad idea. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, the main issue was we during the pre-buy we found corrosion inside the uh, wing on the afterpiece <clears> part, <throat> um, which I know is something that they recently came out with uh, an AD for on the the Cherokees and everything. Um, but even worse, we found what looked like some uh, previous 
repair work that was done there on the aft wing spar. They'd put Cherry Max rivets to hold in the kind of the, the aft wing spar, the mount point the, uh, that they have back there. And not even all those rivets were, were completely through. Their, the A&P also found a crack, and that was kind of one of the first things he looked at. And at that point, he was pretty much saying, you know, they really shouldn't, don't need to go any farther on this inspection because that in itself was was a, a pretty pretty big red flag to, um, that this plane was not going to be something that I, I wanted to buy. But my bigger question was, I want to know how, how can I, as a pilot who has found this information, report this to somebody who can do something about it. I want to be able to pass along that information to other people, like somewhere in the FAA, probably to say, hey, this airplane's out there. Somebody's trying to uh, sell it. I don't want somebody who's eager to buy something to, to run into this issue uh, without you know having a heads up of what's going on. Well, a couple of things. Uh, one is the, the corrosion issue in the Cherokee series, it, it's not a new thing. Those steel plates on the rear spar attachments are really old. That's And they've had a service bulletin out forever to replace those. Yeah, uh, that's what they've done this previously. The, the only person that's in charge or responsible for the airworthiness is the owner. So we see airplanes frequently that come into our shop for an annual inspection for the first time. And we see things like you're talking about pretty frequently. And I find those on pre-buys. I travel around the country doing pre-buys on specific model planes. And I find things like that. And it's, uh, so who do you report to? Because you're, you're right, you have this thought of some sort of safety responsibility. But in a pre-buy, there's no reporting mechanism required. It's not an annual inspection. I, you know, an airplane comes in here for a tire change and the left wing is missing. I can do the tire change and I can sign it off in the law books and it's totally uh, legit. But in, in your situation, the only person really to report to is the aircraft owner because they're the ones that are always in charge of the airworthiness. You know, if they're a shady character... There's not a whole lot that you can do about that. But I will tell you, if you report something, and maybe not in this specific scenario, but let's say you just, you're just you out walking on the ramp and you see something wrong with an airplane and you want to report that, you may or may not know the background story. And if you report something, once you start that train leaving the station, it doesn't stop until the FAA has followed it to the nth degree. And the collateral damage is not the right word, but the people that get sucked into that, innocent, maybe even non-participants, it, it doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not our job to go around and, and be the, the safety police. That's a term that Mike likes to use. And it's, it's true. I understand your feeling that you want to, you want to protect other people, but there's really not a, a proper mechanism to do that. Right. And I think, I think that kind of does lead me to the, the second question that I was uh, talking about and trying to protect myself in this aspect is uh, like, so I was asked to ferry a Cherokee 235 and I get out to, you know, I looked through the books on this one. Everything looked, looked good on the books. Uh, the uh, owner, of, well, it wasn't an owner that was asking me to ferry it. It's actually a, an A&P shop that was asking me to ferry it um, because they wanted to do an annual for the owner. And it was at a uh, an airport that didn't have any, facilities for them to do any of this stuff. When I got out there, I was doing my walk around and, you know, I found a couple of things that, you know, were 
kind of, you know, okay, maybe on the edge of, of being safe, maybe not. Um, but one thing for, for certain was there was a hole, about two inch hole in the, in the bottom of the wing where it had fallen off the jack. <laughs> I turned to the A&P and I said, so what's with this hole in the wing? He's like, oh, they didn't tell you it fell off the jacks. <laughs> like, like, no. They didn't duct tape it? Gee. Yeah. yeah, yeah. At least put it was speed tape on it. Yeah, it, it looked like, you know, you, you took a, a can opener and, and, yep. and popped a, a can and, and and it was just this big two-inch hole in the bottom of the wing. So at that point, I'm like, well, you know, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, I don't think this is safe to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my other question is how, how big a hole can be in the bottom of the wing that's, you know, considered safe to fly. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, uh, let's talk a little bit about who is responsible for determining the airworthiness of an aircraft. Because you, you, you've opened several cans of sardines here. <laughs> and some, some have holes in the bottom. <laughs> um, but I can think of four people who are responsible for uh, assessing airworthiness. The manufacturer is responsible for airworthiness of the airplane when it rolls out of the factory. Once it rolls out of the factory, they're not responsible for it anymore. The owner is responsible for airworthiness. Once a year, the owner has to hire an IA to make an airworthiness determination. And so the IA is responsible for determining airworthiness one day a year and 364 days a year. Airworthiness is determined by the pilot in command. 91.7 basically says you as PIC have to make an airworthiness determination prior to turning the key on every flight. It even says if, if you are aware of something that becomes unairworthy in flight, you're supposed to land the airplane as quickly as you can. So as far as the hole in the wing is concerned, if you were going to fly the airplane, you as PIC are responsible for making that airworthiness determination. And 91.7 doesn't provide for any way of delegating that to anybody else. That You're the person as PIC who has to determine it. So if you're not comfortable with the hole in the wing, it really doesn't matter what the mechanic says or the aircraft owner says or anybody else says. If you're flying it, then you have to be comfortable with it. Yeah, but, it's kind of well, I, how big a hole can be in there because the the A and P said it was okay. He's like, oh, it's just a small hole; it's fine. Um, and then, <laughs> but, and then there was but, actually somebody who just a flesh wound. But you know, I would what I would have loved to see you do, by the way, is to go to the A and P and say, "Would you like? Would you sign off a logbook entry saying it's okay?" You know, yeah, and, that's when you. That's when you, you know there out. there actually there actually are logbook entries like that. If if you have an unairworthy airplane and you need to get a ferry permit for it. But Justin, going back to your original question about feeling responsible about reporting damage so somebody else doesn't get hurt, Mike always likes to tell the story that ratting somebody out about their airplane's airworthiness is kind of like calling the cops when your neighbor's playing the stereo too loud instead of just going over and asking him to turn it down. There is a process for circling back to the owner and saying, hey, did you know this? And nine times out of 10, they're, they're grateful for that information. And you don't have to start that process that Paul was talking, which once it starts, you can't stop it. Well, Justin, great question. Obviously, a lot of discussion here. So really appreciate you coming forward and, and posing that. Yeah, thank you guys for letting me come on. I appreciate it. 
Our next question is from Tim, who may have aviation's most difficult, simple question. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hello. How's it going? Good. Great. Good. How are Great. you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So, yeah, my question, it should be pretty simple, but man, in my experience, it's not. Here it is. What's the best way to consistently hot start a big block engine like on the Sirius SR-22? Oh, wow. There's only three of us on the panel, so you're only going to get three opinions. But <laughs> if you ask 10 or 20, you'd get, you know, I, I'll yeah. tell you how I start my SR-22. It's not a turbo, but it's the same basic engine. Mike has two engines similar to yours, so he may have two opinions on how to do a hot start. <laughs> one for the left and one for the right. <laughs> exactly. Special case. Now, my right engine does start a, a blade or two quicker than my left. I have never figured out why. But Well, this what? is why I asked this question. I've been flying and instructing in Sirius for over 10 years. Whenever a new owner asked me this question, my stock answer is whatever uh, technique works well for you and your airplane. That's actually my. That's yeah, an excellent I, answer. <laughs> then I give my technique as a start point. I remind them to respect the starter limitations. And finally, I say, if all else fails, flood it on purpose and do a flooded start. But then I give them the warning that's a last resort because of the increased likelihood of a fire during start. You're doing real good so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had a, an experience that I think is very relevant to that last comment uh, because I've been flying behind big board continentals for 50 some odd years. But one night about, must've been about 25 years ago, I was starting my Cessna 310. It was sitting on a transient ramp at some airport, I don't remember. And it happened to be sitting on the ramp adjacent to a big giant picture window on the, FA, uh, on the FBO, but, but, but everything was dark, okay? The FBO had gone home, it was, it was at night. And I apparently overprimed my engine and got to see what a stack fire looks like <laughs> in the picture window. And it scared the hell out of me. I, I, I did continue to start and, and, and the fire went out. But ever since then, I've been super careful not, not to flood the engines because, you know, I'd never actually seen that happen before. And boy, it, 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 it was pretty spectacular. So yeah. it gets your attention. Yeah. Right. So my process on, on my SR-22, and of course, I've been starting everybody else's airplanes for decades. And sometimes, you know, that, that flooded start or some version of that ends up being about the only thing that you find out will work. But uh, on mine, it's throttle a mixture forward. I hit prime until I see the fuel pressure stabilize. Not, I don't wait, you know, count 10 seconds or six seconds. I just wait till it stabilizes because my, the only thing I'm trying to do is purge air out of the system and get fuel to the injectors. I don't need a lot of fuel. I just need fuel to the injectors. And then everything's back. I just barely crack the throttle and I engage the starter. And as it's turning, I slowly move the mixture forward. And that's been almost three years now, and I've not missed a start yet. And I do the same process for hot or cold starts. And it's, it's kind of an anomaly. I start uh, 210 engines. They are not the same. They should be, but they are not. And um, there is a process that Cessna Bond Association came up with, and a lot of people use it. I don't know that they came up with it, but, you know, you, it, 
throttled mixture back and you turn the boost pump on on a 210 for like two minutes. I've never been a pilot yet that can do that for two minutes, 45 seconds at most. There's just pilots can't wait that long. And, um, you know, to purge the air out of the system and, and then go on from there. But I think your advice is whatever works within safety limits, because you don't want to see yourself in a window going up in flames like, like Mike was talking <laughs> like Mike. about. That would, I can't imagine what that looked like. That would have, I mean, I've, I've experienced, you know, a fire underneath the airplane from the puddle, but, you know, it's always just a little woof and it's like, oh, gee, I, I didn't die. That's great. But to <laughs> actually see what it looked like, that would have not been Paul, good. Paul, I didn't hear you mention uh, boost pump on low during your start. You leave it off. Well, after, no, after prime, go to low. Yes. Uh, Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah so low. that's very similar. That's uh, I've had an SR-22 for about 10 years now, and I go mixture rich, throttle, uh, crack it slightly open, boost pump low, and then... Uh, Oh, that's for the hot start. And then turn the key within uh, two to three seconds for the hot start. And then advance the throttle as necessary. And I kind of hold the key a little longer uh, during a hot start. Uh, I find that helps. I'm not exactly sure why, but I hold it, you know, one potato uh, more than normal. I don't let go of it at, when it first catches. What's that it, all about? It probably makes you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. It, I, I, I have a. If you let go of it too quickly, it it it, it dies. Hmm. I have a couple of a couple of suggestions on this. Um, for, first of all, I see a lot of people do priming and cranking serially instead of in parallel, and I think that's a bad practice. Uh, where they prime the engine first for wh- whatever period of time they they deem appropriate, and then they crank it. I don't think that's a good idea. I think the the right way to do it is to prime and crank simultaneously. And it's easier on some airplanes than it is on others. There are some airplanes where you need three hands to do that or a, a prehensile tail or something, but it's it's better to do your priming while while you're cranking the engine. Uh, the thing that Paul was describing, although he sort of cut the description short, is something that you that you do if if you have a very very profound hot start where the thing is really badly heat soaked. I've only had to do it a relatively small number of times because it's it's it, it's a it's a bit on the time consuming process. But it involves running the boost pump on high for some period of time. I've never heard two minutes, Paul, but I usually would say say thirty seconds. But with the mixture control at idle cutoff. And, and what that does in a, in a fuel-injected Continental engine is it runs cool fuel from the fuel tank out through the, the engine-driven pump, out through the fuel control unit. And then while, because the mixture control is in idle cutoff, uh, essentially 100% of that fuel then comes back to the uh, swirl chamber of the fuel pump and goes back to the tank through the through the vapor return line. And so by running the fuel out and back and, and with the mixture at idle cutoff, which means that none of it, essentially none of it can get to the, to the nozzles, you're, you're basically purging most of the fuel system of, of any sort of vapor that might've built up because of the heat. And then the only part of the fuel system that you haven't purged is from the fuel control unit to the manifold valve and then out to the nozzles. And it only takes the tiniest 
blip to to clear that last part of the system. But as I said, I I I haven't often had to resort to that. That that's only that you'd only do that when you had a very serious vapor lock problem where you were just having a, a devil of a time trying to get the engine started. That's uh, that's good to know. Cool. Well, like I said, it's a complicated question, especially here in the uh, no. modern day age when you just press a button to start your car. You know, yeah, well, no, fra- wait, you started out, a- <laughs> you said this was a simple question. That was your very first sentence. I was paying attention. <laughs> I, said it sh- I think I, th- I said it should be a pretty simple question. It should be. Oh, okay, You're, you did say it should be, so we'll, we'll give you that one. But Tim, thanks for the great question. We appreciate it. All right. It. Thanks for your time. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy. See you. Bye-bye. So our next question is from Jared, who's worried about some metal showing up in the filter. And as I'm seeing Jared on my screen here, I notice that he spells his name the same as my son, and his head is shaved the same as my son, and he has a red beard the same as my son. <laughs> is he your son? Are you my son? <laughs> Not that I know of. Okay. This, all right. We're going to let it go then. For he's now. your, well, I'm he's be your long lost son. Probably. Uh-oh. <laughs> the one I didn't know about. <laughs> go ahead, Jared. Sorry. Thanks for having me on. I'm actually the relatively new maintenance officer of my uh, flying club here, um, which is small. We're eight or nine guys, depending on the month. I'm not an a and I'm a private pilot. I'm an engineer, but that can be dangerous in some of these situations. Mm-hmm. We have a 1974 172M that has a 180 horse conversion from a, a well-known shop in the Northeast. And there's about 650 hours uh, since that was installed. Um, in 2019, we started finding metal in the oil filter. I don't know if you guys saw the photos that were included, but there's um, there's yeah. silver, like half a centimeter in length. Um, and they're kind of like rounded, almost like extruded wire, but probably not uh, actual wire. Um, we had these sent in for analysis. We've been doing oil analysis, you know, simultaneously with that. Uh, and that was determined to be non-ferrous, but nobody could find a source. So the shop didn't have an idea for where it came from. And they even went back to Lycoming and apparently said that it didn't match anything that they knew of. They did not have any candidate sources. And the recommendation was just uh, shorten up the oil change interval to 25 hours and just keep flying the plane despite this. So, we, I mean, a fair amount of metal finding every time. So this was kind of a, this split the club, right? Some people were relatively comfortable with this and the guidance and just like, okay, well, we just keep changing it more often. And some people were very much uncomfortable with, in a club dynamic that even causes even more issues. And it's even worse because I was not maintenance officer at this point yet. So I got kind of handed this sort of halfway through while we're still trying to troubleshoot everything. Fortunately, we were right at the end of the three-year warranty period, and we got this sort of stuff in while we were still in that window. So it kind of covered us, and we were able to work with the the shop. But again, this guidance eventually wasn't satisfying anymore, and we're like, well, we have to do something with this. We can't just keep making metal at approximately the same rate every 25 hours. You know, we have to do something. So we did kind of basic... Uh, inspection stuff that we could. I mean, we flushed the oil pan. We looked to see if there was anything obvious that you could see from doing, you know, the least invasive, uh, you know, kind of inspections. But eventually we decided to, to crate the thing up and, and send it off the engine off to the shop uh, to have them rebuild it. So when they they looked at it or diagnosed it, at least when they diagnosed it, they ended up pulling it apart and um, 
they claimed that there was a, a, a burr or some sort of irregularity on the crankshaft and that was rubbing against the crankcase and creating these shavings that we were finding. So they, uh, their service to their warranty service to do this was to, um, they patched the crankcase and then this was before our supply chain fund that we have now. So they were, they just got a brand new crank instead of trying to refinish the other one or whatever, and just gave us a brand new crank, installed that, and then did a couple other miscellaneous things. They replaced an exhaust uh, valve guide and reground some valve seats on one of the cylinders. Um, I guess everything else was fine. So they shipped that back to us. We had it installed, and then we were going to do our short sort of, I think, 10 to 15-hour recommended interval um, to check to see you know anything was irregular with the oil again. So we, we did our flying, uh, we got this first oil change back, and we had the exact same types of material in the filter again with a, a relatively benign oil analysis. There isn't any uh, aluminum or anything being found in that. So the question is, what do we do now? <laughs> Paul and Colleen, did you, did you look at the, at the photographs of, of the metal? No, I haven't. There was I'm a, looking a, at it. They're really yeah. long. Um, and, and they're very rounded. And they they don't look to me. I'm not claiming to be a forensic metallurgist or anything, but they don't look to me like what would happen if something on the crankshaft was rubbing against the crankcase because they 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 are they, it would be curls you know with kind of sharp edges that would be scraped off. That and doesn't thin, look anything yeah. like that. The other thing is the crankshaft never touches the crankcase any place. It you know it's got it's it's got bearings, it's got bearings and, and right. a thrust washer. Yeah. So there there shouldn't be any place where the crankcase the crankshaft comes into any sort of even close proximity to the crankcase. So it almost makes you wonder: is it coming from outside the engine instead of inside the engine? Like so. So this was um, I think the, before we sent everything off, there was all there was all of these debates, all the debates yeah, about the dynamics sure. of whether they look the way you would expect. I mean, first because they kind of look wire like. We mm -hmm. kind of asked everyone, it's like, is there any wire screen? Is there anything that could be decomposing somewhere in here that's falling apart? Uh, or did something fall into it during the original construction when they were putting the thing together and stuff got caught in some sort of weird part of the oil pan where there was like a recirculation? Because like there was nothing before, right? We flew the thing for 500 hours. It was right. clean and it just shows up. So it's like if you and, it got and, in there sometime... And Garrett, did, did did you say that you were finding this metal in the in the oil filter? Correct. Because it looked awfully big to get to the oil filter. It looks like the kind of stuff that that ought to mostly anyway be caught by the suction screen. Do you guys pull and inspect the suction screen when you when you change the oil? So uh, I didn't know that was a thing until listening to your show recently. <laughs> <laughs> we're I've doing something! Yay! <laughs> um, so that that was a thing. And I didn't know about it at the time when this happened. So uh, I don't think it's standard procedure. I, I do some of these with uh, the president of the club. We do the oil changes ourselves. Um, and we don't pull the screen when we do that. It's probably full of metal, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I'd be concerned about that being really full of metal because that stuff looked awfully big to make it to the filter. I, I, I'm guessing only a small fraction of it managed to, it would, ha it would have to hit the suction screen you know, in just the right way so that it could get through it. Because if it hit it sideways, it would be it would be stuck in the suction screen. When they tore the engine down, did they take the uh, oil pump apart? I don't know. And they didn't tell us. So this is another thing. Is mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
we didn't get a lot of pictures or anything. We got pictures from our shop of them taking the stuff off. But besides the recorder uh, and kind of the standard stuff that was in there, not a lot of documentation. Um, and this was also in like the COVID period. So you couldn't really, um, there are, you were willing yeah. to go up there, but it, it was kind of closed basically. You said, you said, you sent the stuff to the lab and you, and you got a, an AMS number back on it or something as to what alloy it was. Yeah. So they had this, I don't, I don't know if I could find the document here real quick, but yeah, even there, I have emails from, from Lycoming say that they don't, they don't know what it is, which I think is why we went in the direction of, is this external contamination yeah. or something? It sure does look like pieces of a screen. I mean, on my experimental, I've seen screens used behind, say, the air filter to keep the air filter in and those things decompose. Another thing that comes to mind is the um, alternate air door sometimes starts to come apart and you might get pieces of the hinge or hardware going in. But I don't know if it would really end up in the oil. That would it, Could it make its way to the oil? It's I don't know. Big pieces I mean, I was like that? Like roller bearings, but, you know, needle bearings from the uh, pivot on the... Uh, Air door. But it, but it's non-ferrous. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They're steel. Uh, so right. You did establish that it was not in ferrous. That it was alum, some kind of aluminum alloy. Correct. It's aluminum. Is helicoil material aluminum or is it typically no, steel? It's steel. Okay. It's steel. Wow. <laughs> that's that's a stumper. I would really want to know if they took the oil pump apart. I would think they would almost have to, because. You know, whatever's in that filter had to go through the pump. That's right. That's awfully big. That's awfully big stuff to be going yeah, through. Big stuff really to go through. If that, pump if that pump is not damaged, then I can't imagine how those parts got into the filter. And if you're doing warranty service, you think you would do the simpler, cheaper things yeah. first. I right? mean, it, it wouldn't. It, it, it's if it's aluminum, so it wouldn't damage the pump gears, but it certainly would seem like it might damage the pump housing. Right. It may. There'd be marks. Right. Yeah, somewhere almost has to be marks in that thing. Well, gosh, I don't think we're going to get to charge for this one either. <laughs> I think they, they ought to send you the engine, Paul, and let you tear it down as a neutral party. As that would be fun. <laughs> we, we debated that as a as a possible as a, yeah. as a possible thing, right? Have have a have a third party, but then again, it, it's complicated from. From a warranty perspective, right? right. Yeah. Something going to want another shop. Well, what is what what is what is this nameless shop that we know the name of, but we're not going to say, right? Is that oh, the, it's in the write up. Yeah, it's uh, in the write up. So there's a little bit of yeah, there's a little bit of. Uh, I mean, but it's it's a it's a good job. It's, oh, it's a very well known shop. <laughs> so what are they what are they what are they saying you got to do now? They they must they must be very puzzled by this as well because they just finished doing a teardown inspection on the engine. Uh correct. And 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 replacing that crankshaft couldn't have been cheap. That's that's an expensive chunk of metal. Yeah. So we're obviously out, you know, ripping the engine out and transporting it to them. They're out whatever work they did. And then yeah. there's debate of no matter what we do, you're going to have the plane down for some period of time. And what's the point of a flying club with one plane if you don't yeah. have one plane, you know? So oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It causes a lot of drama on that. So again, uh does this aircraft have a constant speed prop or a governor? No. Okay, it's fixed pitch so. prop? Yep. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's 172M. It's fixed pitch. Uh-huh. I was just thinking about what else the oil might go through external to the engine that might be generating metal, but that's not a good path. You, you, know, know. you know, I remember back in the day in, when I was in uh, avionics school way back when, 
there was always that one kid in class when you were putting stuff together, you'd go off and have lunch and they would drop a couple little extra parts in your parts file. <laughs> oh, yeah. And surely you don't have some prankster in your group that's doing that no. when you do these old changes, right? I'm just, uh, I mean, it's just a thought. I'm just saying. So about half of them we do. And then occasionally if we have them matched up with something else that we want the AMP to do, we sort of roll that together, you know, as a thing. But I know I'm not dropping anything in there. I've never seen well, anything, any source yeah. of contamination that would be obvious during the process. You might want to see doing. if there's a common denominator person to all these events, you know, just not, I'm just saying. Yeah. Again, so we've actually <laughs> done two different two different shops, too, during this period of the same thing <laughs> for, for slightly different reasons. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If, if, that, if this engine goes back to the engine shop for another teardown, I would send somebody to be there during the teardown. Treat this almost as if it was a, you know, a a, a post accident forensic yeah. teardown, because <laughs> there, there, there's something fishy going on here. This airplane has a belt-driven alternator, right? So there's no way alternator metal can get into the into the oil. And the starter's um, external. Yeah, but they would see gears chewed up when they tore the engine down the first time. That, doesn't make any sense. It's just a very odd piece of metal, or a collection of very odd pieces. And, yeah. and it's a lot of metal. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It looks like wire. I, I agree. That is not shaving, so... Well, Jared, thank you for the question. I wish we had come up with a more concrete um, solution or answer to it, but thanks for making the call. We we enjoy, enjoy a puzzler. Yeah. Thanks for taking it. <laughs> Well, that's a wrap. We know a lot more about maintenancing than podcasting, so we would love your input. You can send us your ideas on what you'd like us to talk about. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye, everybody. <laughs>